Every good parent um, seeks to encourage their children toward right behavior. Uh, every once in a while, we are given the opportunity to encourage our kids by pointing out the, f- the failures of, of other children, right? I, I mean, there's always some kid to whom you can point and say, don't, please don't turn out like them. Uh, remember who you are. You're an Andrews. Don't be like that Smith boy with, any, uh, with apologies to any Smiths present. What? This is exactly what Paul does this morning. He is, he is nearing the end of his letter. Uh, while it is a book that found its way under the direction and inspiration of the Holy Spirit into our Bibles that sit on your laps, it was nonetheless a personal letter. It begins with the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. It's a parent writing to a child, and he's actually writing to tell him, don't be like them. Uh, We know well by now he's writing to young Pastor Timothy, whom he left in uh, Ephesus to uh, deal with a mess. He encourages him to to, uh, uh, in cleaning up that mess, that, that issue of false teachers in the church. You, you need to deal with that. And, and each time that he brings it up, and he does it three times, each time he brings it up, he follows it with a, with a personal, passionate word of exhortation and encouragement to Timothy. In a word, what he says is, Timothy, don't turn out like them. Consider, for example, chapter 1. He reminds Timothy, he left him there to deal with false teachers, to set things in order. He tell those guys not to teach strange doctrines. We looked at that word, heterodoxy. And after exposing them, he gets to verses 18 and 19 and says to Timothy, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and and, and the good conscience, which, listen, some have rejected, look at them. They've rejected, they've suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Don't turn out like them. You hear Paul's grave concern. Beware, danger lurks, stay faithful, fight well, keep the faith. Then then in chapter 4, he exposes the false teachers again. Their teaching is not just heterodoxy, that is strange or different. He tells us there is the doctrine of demons inspired by deceitful spirits. It's not just a matter of minor theological differences that divide us. This is absolutely evil. So he says, in pointing out these things to the brothers, you, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished. I want you to be nourished in the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline yourself, Timothy. Don't turn out like them. He goes on a few verses later, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather show yourself an example. You be an example that people can look at, that other parents can look at and say, be like him. Be an example. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Pay a close attention to yourself and to your teaching, Timothy. Keep, a, keep an eye on yourself. Don't turn, out like, don't turn out like them. Every time he addresses these false teachers, he addresses Timothy personally and by nature of the fact that this letter found its way into our Bibles, he addresses you 
I want you to hear the you being you personally. False teachers are out there. They wage war against our souls. Be on the alert. Guard yourselves. Do not be like them. See, near the end of his letter, he takes one final shot at these false teachers. We looked at that last week in chapter 6, verses 3 to 10. They've got it all mixed up. They thought godliness, they think ministry is a means to financial gain. They got it all wrong. Godliness with contentment, that's where true gain is. Don't you remember, we brought nothing into this world. We're not going to take anything out of it. If you have food and covering, that is clothing and shelter, be content with that. These guys, they, they just want to get rich. They plunge themselves into ruin and destruction. They pierce themselves with many griefs. And so, having exposed these false teachers yet one more time, Paul turns his attention to personal encouragement and exhortation to Timothy. Timothy, he says, don't be like them. It practically jumps off the page. Look at it with me. Our text, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and, you made, and made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, which he will bring about at the proper time. He, that is God, the Father, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Every time he addresses false teaching, he reminds Timothy, of who he is. Remember, Timothy, remember who you are. Remember your, your calling. You remember your calling to salvation. Remember your calling to, to service. Remember, Timothy, the prophecies previously made about you. Remember, Timothy, the spiritual gift that was bestowed on you. Remember, Timothy, t- this morning, this, the confession that you made. And every time, having reminded him of God's grace in his life in the past, he commands him to stay faithful in the present and in the future. Remember the prophecies previously made. Now, fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Remember the spiritual gift that you received. Now, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Remember your confession. And now, keep the commandment. If false teachers abounded in Paul's day, how much, how much more do they abound today? If they infiltrated the, the church from without through itinerant preachers, if they arose uh, from within as wolves in sheep's clothing from among their own number, from among the elders, how much more today with conferences and books and radios and TVs and iPods and, and the internet. How much more must we be on the alert? I mean, if I could, I would come to every one of your houses and I would block Christian TV. Is it possible? Is it possible that the greatest danger to the church today does not come from, has not come in the past from communism uh, 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 of yesterday or is it possible that the greatest danger of the church today is not ISIS 
The church has always thrived in the midst of persecution. Is it possible that the greatest danger in the church today is from false teaching within? So my desire this morning is to encourage you. To encourage you to flee these things. Flee this false teaching. Be men and women of God. Keep the commandment without stain or, or reproach until, until the very appearing of Jesus Christ. This passage is one of perseverance. He's telling us, don't be like them. It's full of imperatives, full of commands. My brothers and my sisters, flee. Flee these things and pursue these things instead. Fight the good fight. Lay hold of eternal life. Keep the commandments. How long? Do these things until Jesus comes back to the praise of his glory. We've got a huge task in front of us today. The outline looks like this. You're going to see the commands delivered and gives us five different commands and then the commands direct. How long? And then the commands doxology. Paul has just delivered a scathing condemnation of these false teachers. Remember we saw last week that he could hardly use stronger words I can hardly use stronger words today. Seeing ministry as a means to financial gain, seeing ministry as a, as a means for personal prosperity, that is false teaching. And it is no small evil. It distracts people from the gospel. Paul roundly condemns this teaching as unorthodox, as heterodox, as different, as false. You, Timothy, you, Timothy, verse 11, flee from these things. That's, that's an okay translation. I don't know why they translated it this way. They mix the words all around. Literally it reads, but you, and you is in the emphatic, you, oh man of God, flee these things. Oh is a word that we don't hardly use anymore, at least in our writing, and it's left out in most of your English translations, but it's there, oh Oh, Timothy, oh man of God, the, sharper, the contrast could not be sharper. You, oh Timothy, do not be like them. Instead, flee. Flee. Don't hang around them. Don't, don't, don't study them. Don't expose yourself to them. Don't dabble in them. Don't even consider them. All these things that he has condemned in these false teachers throughout the book, stay away from them. They're my brothers and sisters, there is a time to flee. There is a time to get away from falsehood. It is dangerous to do, to do otherwise. Too much of the time we hang around, we taste a little, dabble a little, and before you know it, we're caught up in a web of sin and deceit. How many people have you known who, who, who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ and started looking into other stuff, and before you knew it, they had lapsed? I want to say to you, Flee from these things. When error is exposed, stay away from it. That's why I am so passionate about exposing false teachers. I do not want you. I do not want you exposed to error. I don't want you to even consider it. I don't want you to get caught up in it. I want you to flee it. Don't even turn on the TV and listen to that drivel. Flee these things, oh Man of God. That would have gotten Timothy's attention. Only a few times in the entire Bible that that title is used, primarily in the Old Testament. 
and is always reserved for Israel's special leaders like Moses and Samuel and David and Elijah and, El and Elisha, a few others. For Paul to call Timothy man of God, it was highly significant. Isn't that what you want to be? Man of God? Don't you want to be a woman of God? He is shocking him awake. Timothy, you have been ca called to God, uh, by God to salvation. You have been called by God to service. Oh, man of God, stay away from these things. And I would say to you, as you seek to be a man or a woman of God, you must be committed, singularly, solely committed to truth. Sound words, he's called it. The good deposit, the, the, the gospel. This um, uh, phrase, man of God, is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it was actually when Paul was writing to Timothy, this time 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know the passage. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So that what? The man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You want to be a man of God? You want to be a woman of God? The man or woman of, tr of God must be singularly focused on truth found in all Scripture. Stay away from falsehood. Do not be sucked in by it. Do not even expose yourself to it. Flee from it. Now, notice we do not just flee aimlessly. Yes, we run away from these things, but we run toward something else. In fact, let me, let me just take a little aside here. You see, saying no to something and not replacing it with something else is often ineffective. Let me say that again. Saying no to something, turning away from something, and not turning to something else, not embracing something else is often ineffective. For example, you say no to drugs, you need to replace it with the pursuit of something else. Paul even said that when he said, don't get drunk with, with wine or anything else. Instead, instead, turn to something else. What? Be filled with the Spirit. Surrender yourself consciously, continuously, not to the control of wine or, or drugs, but to the control of the Spirit. I want to say to you, and I know I'm talking to a lot of you, don't just say no to the internet and all of the garbage that it offers. You must... That, that's, that's the beginning, but you must replace it with something else. You must replace it with something wholesome and good. Otherwise, you, like a bug drawn to the light, you'll just go back to it. Here, Paul says, flee falsehood and pursue instead righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. What a great list. And all agree that he intends for us to see this in these six things in three pairs that, that go together. Righteousness is right behavior toward one another. Godliness is living a life pleasing before God. So, so righteousness is horizontal. Godliness is, is vertical. Faith and love always go together or often go together in Paul's list. Pursue a faithful life, a life of faith, which inevitably will produce a life of love. People of faith are people of love. You show me someone who is not loving, I'll show you someone weak in faith. Pursue perseverance and gentleness. Perseverance is 
steadfastness, endurance, patience in the midst of difficult circumstances, often suffering, often suffering in the Bible. And I know those false teachers out there, the ones who tell you you can be rich, also tell you that you can be prosperous and you don't have to worry about suffering. That is a lie from the very pit of hell. Persevere and, and be patient in, in the midst of difficult circumstances. Gentleness is patience in the midst of difficult people. Yeah, whoever that was that just jumped into your mind. Gentleness. Flee false teaching and pursue these things that ought to make up our Christian lives. Next imperative, fight the good fight of faith. Isn't it interesting that he follows faith, love, and perseverance, uh, with, uh, gentleness with fight? <laughs> because there is a time to fight. He's already encouraged Timothy um, with these words back in chapter 1. First time he nailed these false teachers. This command I entrust uh, to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, they, by them you fight the good fight. Fight! Here he adds the words, fight the good fight of the faith. We take it a couple of different ways. Fight the good fight that is required of those um, in the faith. We are indeed in a war. The enemy of our souls would seek to defame God's glory and distort God's gospel and destroy God's people. We must faithfully fight. It could be that, but given the challenge of false teachers, I think what Paul is saying is fight the good fight for the faith. Fight against the false teaching. Protect it. Defend it. Keep the gospel and its teaching pure. Fight for it. Don't let anyone attack it. Don't let anyone replace it. Distract from it. Defend the gospel at all costs, which leads to the next imperative. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. The word take hold of uh, is really quite interesting, quite strong. It's the word that it was used of Jesus reaching down and grabbing Peter as he sunk into the sea. It was used of the, the people in the, in the temple who grabbed Paul as they sought to beat him. The word speaks of grabbing and holding on to something or someone violently. It speaks of a passionate, violent, strong grip. Timothy, grab hold tightly the eternal life to, to which you have been called. Hold on to it violently. Don't let it go. This goes with fighting the fight. That's a bit confusing here. If eternal life is something we get when we're saved, why is it that he tells Timothy and us to grab hold of it? Didn't he already have it? And and in what way can we grab eternal life now? I thought eternal life was something we get after we die. Well, there is a sense in which eternal life speaks of that which is future, but not exactly right. Yes, eternal life speaks of never-ending life, but in the scripture, eternal life is more about quality than quantity. Think about it. It includes quantity, but every person who has ever lived has been born with a quantity of life. Every person. It was Lord Byron who said it's an awesome thing to, to, to be born as a human, because when you are born, you are born into an eternal existence, and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You will live eternally. Includes quantity, but the eternal life that Scripture speaks of 
is that of quality of life, which brings hope and peace and joy. And it brings it even in the midst of living in this broken world. In that sense, we have eternal life right now. Yes, we must die, but that will never affect our eternal quality of life. Jesus defined eternal life this way in John 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Quantity is a given, but the quality of never-ending eternal life comes in a personal knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. So here Paul is telling Timothy, grab hold, violently seize, don't let go of that eternal life that you now possess that is summed up in a personal knowledge of God through Christ. It is to this you were called. Grab hold of it. Enjoy it. Live in the knowledge and fullness and future hope of it. You say, really? But, but this life is so hard. Yes, it is. But then there comes this reminder that we grab hold of eternal life because this is not all there is. We have eternal life now and in the life to come. As I suggested earlier, when Paul encourages Timothy these three times, uh, after dealing with false teachers, he reminds him of his call. His call to s service or his call to salvation. Remember the prophecies previously made. Remember the spiritual gift that you received when, when you were placed into service. Now take hold of eternal life in which you were called when you, remember when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Lots of discussion about when or where Timothy made this good confession. Some suggest since Paul uh, reminded Timothy of his ordination after he, he dealt with the false teachers the first two times, that he must be talking about that here. And that may be true. You see, at ordination, as you're standing before a group of uh, people who examine you, typically pastors, ministry leaders, theologians who examine you, they, they examine you to, to, to ascertain your orthodoxy. They, they want to see you affirm the orthodox truths of the Christian faith. Could be that. Remember when you made a solid confession of faith, a solid confession of orthodoxy at your ordination when you were placed into service. Could be that. Don't think so. Others, including me, think the good confession fits with his conversion and, and baptism. Remember the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession. The good confession. The, the, the verb form of that word is used in Romans 10, 9, a verse we all know. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. And we remember in Acts chapter 16 that Timothy was a young man, perhaps a kid in Lystra. He had heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul. He had believed the truths of the gospel. He had made a confession. I love that word confession. I like it a lot better than profession. He made a confession of faith in the presence of many witnesses, those who were likely there at his baptism. You see, at your baptism, it was common to make a public profession, confession of faith. Actually, the, the baptism itself is a confession of faith. You are saying, I believe in Jesus and his gospel. I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am identifying with him in his death. I am dying to myself, and I am being raised as a new person. And it is interesting that Paul reminds him of that event. You see, I think there is some value in remembering when you confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life. I think there's some value. 
I, I, I think sometimes we go through difficult times. I think Timothy was going through a particularly difficult time here. Maybe it's a trial of faith in your life due to circumstances, external circumstances around you. Maybe teaching that you are hearing, maybe challenges that you are facing in your home or at work or at school, and those challenges are bearing down on your faith. But maybe it's a trial of faith that comes from within. Maybe it's a result of your own doubts, your own sin, or your own challenges. Remember your confession. Remember you believed and trusted Jesus as the Lord of your life and remember that he is indeed that. Remember that the strength of your salvation is not dependent on the strength of your faith. It is never, the strength of your salvation has never been dependent on the strength of your faith. The the strength of your salvation has always been dependent on the strength of the one believed. Remember. Remember your confession. Jesus is Lord. Finally, we get to the last imperative, the final imperative of the charge itself. It still takes him a couple of verses to get there. Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified. Here's the words we just looked at. Good confession before Pontius Pilate. Stop right there. Paul starts, I'm charging you. I'm charging you right here in the presence of heaven and in the presence of, uh, of God, the one who gives life to everything. I'm charging you in the presence of the one who gave you eternal life. Timothy, and I'm charging you in the presence of the one who made your eternal life possible through the gospel, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, who testified the good confession when he was facing a particularly difficult time. See what Paul is doing? Remember the confession that you made about Jesus. Remember that he also made the same good confession. I believe that we, we make the confession that Jesus made. What confession did Jesus make before Pilate? All four Gospels declare it. Matthew 27, Mark um, 15, Luke 23, and John 18. Look at John chapter 18. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or does someone else tell you? Uh, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, chief priests delivered you to me. What, what have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, all four gospels, all four gospels, Pilate said to him, so then you are a king, Jesus answered, in all four gospels. He confessed in all four gospels, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Yes, Pilate, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. I am not just any king. I am not just a king. I am the king. Jesus made the good confession. And when we believe, we make the same confession. Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the King of the universe, and we believe that He came in the world to testify of truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. I, pre- I charge you in the presence of Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment. Keep the commandment without stain or, 
or, or reproach. Lots of discussion about what the commandment is. In fact, one of my commentaries had eight different um, options from which to choose. I read through them. They all look the same to me. In the end, they are basically the same. Paul has commanded Timothy throughout this letter to proclaim, protect, and to preserve the gospel. He called it sound words. He called it the truth. He called it the good deposit. Guard the gospel. Keep the commandment. Keep the gospel pure. Don't let anyone mess with the gospel. Keep it without stain and reproach. How long? How long? How long do we flee false teaching, pursue righteousness and godliness, fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life, and keep the commandment to preserve the gospel? Because if truth be told, I am really, really tired. Point, point two, how long until the very appearing of Jesus Christ? I know that there is lots of discussion today about when and, and where, and, and, and well, maybe not where, but how Jesus will come back. But one thing that we can all agree on, he is coming back. Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, I don't know. He is coming back, and it will be a glorious appearing. Remember when he was taken up to, to heaven from the Mount of Olives. The disciples were standing there looking up at the sky. kind of lights on, nobody's home, look. Uh, the two men, uh, two angels appeared to him and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. His coming is sure it will be visible and every eye will see him. Until then, however and whenever it unfolds, keep the commandment, keep the gospel pure and proclaim it to the very ends of the earth. And the second coming of the second coming of Jesus Christ, God himself will bring about at the proper time. Remember in Galatians 4 that God sent his son the first time at just the right time. So also he will send his son at the right time, the proper time, not a moment before and not a moment too late. Yes, I know it has been a couple thousand years. I know that scoffers come saying, where is this promise of his coming? Come on, you guys still believe this nonsense? Everything continues just like it has since the beginning of time? Sure, but with the Lord, we remember that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Time is not relevant with God. Jesus will come when the Father sends him, not a moment too early, not a moment too late. His delay only allows more people to believe. Paul thinks about this coming of Christ and the opportunity the gospel presents to the end of the earth, and he breaks out into doxology, a third and final point. He describes God in the following ways, which are really quite similar to his doxology in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, causing many to believe that he either wrote this and and quoted it in chapter 1 and chapter 6, or he borrowed it, and it was a common doxology throughout the church at the time. I don't know. He is first. He is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the only sovereign. Sovereignty speaks of his absolute right to rule and his absolute control over everything. Only God is the sovereign. There is no other in fact, he is so sovereign that he is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the king of all who would call himself king. This was a slap in the emperor's face who called himself the King of Kings. He is the Lord of all those who would call themselves Lord. Every king, every lord, every person who has ever ruled in every, any position of authority will one day bow the knee to our sovereign God. There is only one. I hope that you have not missed the point. God the Father is here called King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Jesus receives the same title 
when he comes back in Acts chapter 19, uh, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 19, he shares the same magnificent title as the Father because he is deity. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Second, Paul tells us that God alone, don't miss, don't miss the uniqueness that Paul is ascribing to our God. He alone is sovereign. He alone possesses immortality. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought you just said we had eternal life. Yes, we have eternal life, but that has been granted to us from God as a gift. Our eternal life is derivative. God alone has life in himself. No one else does. Third, our God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. In his doxology in chapter 1, Paul said that our God is invisible. Every view of God is simply a representation of him or a glimpse of his glory. No man has seen or can see or will see our glorious God in all of his fullness. He dwells in unapproachable light. What are you going through? Do you realize the God that you serve? Do you understand that that, that he is sovereignly in control of everything that you face. He alone then deserves honor and eternal dominion. Ultimate and final honor, the immortal sovereign deserves and maintains eternal dominion, eternal rule. Paul gets to the end, and what else could he say? What else can we say but amen? This is the reason that we flee. This is the reason that we pursue. This is the reason that we fight. This is the reason that we take hold of eternal life. This is the reason that we keep the gospel pure because we serve the only true God. To him alone be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Father, you are magnificent. You are beyond our reach. You are beyond our understanding. You are, you, you, we cannot even see you. You dwell in unapproachable light. You alone are sovereign. You alone are immortal. So what is man that you are mindful of him? In the midst of our rebellion and disobedience, you sent your son, king of kings and lord of lords, to be a lamb who would die to take away the sins of the world so that we could be granted not just quantity of life, but quality of eternal life so we could dwell in your presence made possible through the gospel. We will keep it pure. We will keep it unstained. We will keep it above reproach to the very end of time because the gospel and the gospel alone saves, redeems, reconciles people. We believe it. We celebrate it this particular week. In Christ's name, amen.